From the University of Notre Dame, I'm Andy Fuller, and these are Notre Dame Stories. In this episode, we look at mining information from unexpected sources, what your social circle can tell you about your health, and what centuries-old travel guides can tell us about a city. We look at society's grandest problems and we ask ourselves, how do we bring different faculties of mind to come together? Mm. 21st century research and science is not domain of one discipline. Nitesh Chawla is the Frank M. Fryman Professor in the College of Engineering. So we're talking about uh, the study published in the uh, Public Library of Science Journal, Social Network Structure is Predictive of Health and Wellness. You know, when you talk about health and wellness, it's, it's an interesting question for uh, a professor of uh, computer science and engineering maybe to, to tackle. So, so how did you kind of come to, to this research problem or, or this question? I believe we are now living in an era of quantified self, where we are all data driven. We are, we are able to measure aspects of things. And health and wellness or health and well-being is generally has a significant interaction with our lifestyle, our environment, our behaviors, and about more than 80% of the factors that contribute to my disease or to my becoming sick or to my worsening of my health are my lifestyle, environment, and behavioral factors. Hmm. There's a smaller genetic piece to it, but it's largely driven by the other factors. So if, and I spend most of my time outside of a health of my physician's office. If I go see a physician, I see a physician maybe for 13 minutes is my annual visit. So what happens in all the other minutes and hours and days I'm spending outside? And how do I begin to have an ownership of my health and wellness? And so the question that that came to my mind several years ago as we started thinking about these issues is if truly my health and wellness is driven by my lifestyle, my environment and behaviors, I share that with folks in the neighborhood, I share that with the population, I share that with people who have similar beliefs, tastes, attitude as me. And we have seen companies like Netflix and Amazon become popular in recommending movies and books to you based on what similarities you share. Mm. I can go on Netflix, I don't know who those millions of people are, but Netflix says, you better watch this today, Nitesh, <laughs> and I would watch it. Why? Because Netflix said so. And that gives me an instant gratification. I go to Amazon. Amazon says, you bought this book. You may be interested in this thing as well or something else. And I buy more. And it shows up at my doorstep 24 or 48 hours later. So all of these, these market economies that we are seeing are, are driven by the idea of personalization, by leveraging data about people who are similar to you. We don't have to speak to them, know them. So in my mind, why is health and wellness any different? Mm. If if the fact remains that about 80% of factors that drive my health and wellness are my lifestyle, environment, and behavior, arguably I share my similarities with people on that. So if I could figure out how people are similar, then I can recommend diseases for you. Come to disease.com. Of course, I'm never gonna recommend diseases, <laughs> but that's the idea is if my disease is my book or a strategy for wellness or a strategy for intervention because Oftentimes, we don't place the person in context. Hmm. We place a disease in context, but not a person. And that's been sort of the driving question of the research in my lab for several years is, how do we begin to place the person in a context of a socio-ecological model? And then we started looking at 
how people are similar, whether what diseases I've had in the past. And also things that come to play is I can suggest that Natasha eat these vegetables or eat broccoli. I hate broccoli. If you <laughs> recommend it to me, I still won't eat it. Uh, uh, but if it's something that you can begin to recognize what my plate looks like, which is informed by my culture, which is informed by my habits, and how others have been successful in managing their diseases or managing their wellness, similar to me, perhaps I can learn from them. Hmm. So truly, as a computer scientist with a research focus on artificial intelligence and looking at networks of people, how people interact, what are some of the sociological principles of that, we started asking these questions that if that is the case, if I am, my context as a person is my demographic, my uh, social determinants of health, my social network, how does it inform my health and wellness? Mm. So that's how I started because I looked at it as a data and an algorithm problem. And we need to be able to predict something about someone based on the data. Say it was an AI or a machine learning application and it was a perfect mix to be asking these questions from a different perspective. And, and with the foray of variables, we were able to get access to, we have access to today about individuals' physical activities, the heart rate, to number of steps, to, to sleep, and to everything else. But again, the question becomes, yes, we have all that. I can get reminders on my, on my watch that says, hey, if you walk for 14 more minutes, you will get to your goal of 600 calories or what have you. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Why should I do that? How do we begin to contextualize that? So, so what, the way I like to think about is, what does this quantified self tell us about qualified self? Mm. Or what does my qualified self tell about my quantified self? How do we bring it together to inform my health and well-being? How did you go about um, answering that uh, that question? You know, the, the qualified self sounds something like something kind of abstract, but you wanted to put parameters around it so you could use Absolutely. data to answer the question. So, so basically, the way so as a, we have done multiple studies around this topic, but for this specific study that we're talking about today, uh, published in PLOS, we we had there's a study sponsored by NIH that we've been that's been an ongoing study at Notre Dame for several years. It's an interdisciplinary study with sociologists and computer scientists and psychologists, and we had given uh, Fitbits to uh, incoming freshmen at Notre Dame, and uh, we had uh, we also had access to you know their phone connectivity in the sense you know who the message and everything else and uh, of course all the data is de-identified it's it follows all the rules and regulations of human subjects uh, an IRB approved study but so we had all that data and then we also were asking students surveys about what do you how do you feel today what's your uh, what's your perception of your stress between levels one to five or your attitude or your happiness or even your self-perception of your health hmm. and and there is something as and we know networks play a role in diffusion of my beliefs attitude networks have been demons have established that to be the case and then we also think that what my perception of my health or well-being is also reflective of my alter ego which means that my someone in the social networks uh, parlay that means someone who i'm connected to Mm -hmm. My perception is how I'm doing based on who I'm connected to. Am I better or worse than that person? Or what I believe the person I'm closely connected to is feeling 
could represent my own perception as well. So they're feeling a certain way about themselves, whether it's they're in a bad mood or they're not feeling particularly healthy today, and that impacts us. That could impact, yes, that okay. could impact us. There's this, there's this thing about how these things may flow in a network. And then we said, okay, now we, and we created a social network of these individuals based on the communication patterns uh, that, you know, this ID1 communicate with ID2 and back and forth. And this was it. So we could build a network based on how they communicated, messaged or, or called each other. And from there, we said, okay, what is a social network topology looks like? So if, if I'm a, a gregarious outward person, I may have more connections. Or if I'm an influencer, I may be more central in the network. So we try to understand that qualified self of that individual by looking at their position and their network topology. And then we also had some outcomes available based on how they felt or perceived their stress, their sleep, their their uh, happiness and positive attitude to be. And then we developed machine learning algorithms and we said, okay, if I just get my, if I assume that I have no information about your social network, and if I were to come up with some intervention and say, okay, if I just look at your variable data, your quantified self, and predict your, uh, your uh, stress, or your happiness or attitude, I get some accuracy. Mm-hmm. Now, if I add to that your social network structure characteristics, which is how tightly connected I am, measured by clustering coefficient, how central and influential I am, measured by centrality, how well I'm connected, measured by degree, etc. Does that help in improving mm-hmm. my predictability? And we know, uh, the, the answer is yes. There is a significant, a statistically significant improvement in me being able to predict those factors. Hmm. And we also noticed that the social network characteristics that we derived with respect to my activity patterns are highly correlated to you. There's a strong correlation to you if I don't know anything about your quantified self, if you just give me a social network structure, I can suggest who are people like you in terms of your activity patterns in your network. So, So that's where the qualified and quantified self comes to play by looking at data. My my hypothesis is that this is anything that requires us to change our behavior or to follow a habit. It is, and especially on health and well-being or health and wellness, it's, uh, it's not instant gratification. We need to be committed for a longer period of time. And to be committed for a longer period of time, we need to absorb other things. We need to have a support system or a support structure, oftentimes. And that really comes to play. So that's a hypothesis that it sort of is like, you know, the old adage of having a gym buddy. Mm. So it's your gym buddy that you're having, and then you're feeling obligated to go because your friends outside waiting on you, even the day you don't want to go, but you go, ah, my <laughs> friends outside. and. Uh, I'll give you a personal example here. So last year I climbed uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. Mm. And we also, there were six of us, uh, been friends for, gosh, 25 years. Mm. Uh, and uh, and we, did, we embarked on this. I, I have never camped before in my life before this. The, the biggest hike I ever did was 2,000 feet <laughs> in Seattle one weekend in preparation of this. And here at Mount Kilimanjaro is 19,400 odd feet. Uh, 
So it was a, and I've never in my life camped outside. I've never slept in a tent outside. And I figured, why not just do it on Kilimanjaro in the harshest of conditions? <laughs> sure. Uh, because my That's one does, yeah. That's what one does, right? So, uh, but I knew, but there was something, but of course we were trying to get ready for it. And I, you know, my endurance has always been gifts. I figured, okay, you know, I'll just get my endurance up. And we were supporting each other in preparation and in our training towards this summit, right? Uh, and it took time. I had to adapt my behavior. I had to go and modify my behavior. Um, uh, and my son, uh, who was 10 years old at that time, was became a motivator. He would be after my life because he was like, come on, you got to do something. <laughs> so we did. We got, there was this lot of interventions, in my view, to each other, uh, either from family and uh, or, or the same group of friends that we had to train this. And we kept reminding each other, hey, what it takes. And then when we started the climb as well, it was that trust and confidence in each other that we are in it together. Hmm. I don't know if individually, if I'd gone just to do it, how far I would have gone because there were moments of despair, there were moments of challenge. And two of our friends uh, actually had some struggle towards the end, but I, I recall how we pushed them through. So we all submitted and we all came down. Uh, we had our challenges, but we had that thing going together and we understood each other. And that was amazing. Right? Mm -hmm. And since then, even though we are not training together, but that caused that months leading to that and that experience invariably had an effect on my approach to health and wellness. I became, I didn't just stop going to the gym then. I didn't just stop running. I did it. I was now my next goal is to perhaps do a half marathon or, mm -hmm. uh, or something. But so that's, and that stayed. So that social aspect, we, we, and I was, I have all my data for my quantified self. I didn't bother to me how many steps I was taking or what my heart rate was or everything else, because that was immaterial. It's mm. just a measurement, but how we win together. So, so these are the properties that we are trying to identify from data. And we, we believe these social determinants of health are paramount to address these issues. Mm. Yeah, that, that's kind of the next uh, area. I know you're not a um, uh, personal trainer or anything like that, but I am curious, based on this study, um, if someone is uh, wondering about, about their health and they buy a Fitbit, should they also, or would they be better off kind of thinking about where they sit in their social spheres? Yes, and I believe that's what some, some things that we are seeing is that I believe a like this exercise bike peloton, right? Uh, it is thriving on the idea of biking with a social connect, social fabric mm. that you have, and you speak to people who are on it, they talk about their virtual trainers as if they are friends for life, right? They have, uh, it's an exercise bike otherwise, mm. right? Why is it becoming a rave? It's the social connectivity. Mm. And if I were to do it, I would sort, if I'm a personal trainer, I have a group of individuals doing it, I would encourage a social connectivity amongst those individuals, along with the Fitbit, along with the variable, along with your favorite variable that you may have. Um, and that allows one to measure oneself. I think the, the whole area, if I sort of think about our research in a our, in our lab in this area of health and wellness, it's, it's truly about personalization to an individual. And when we think about personalization, we're not just thinking about personalizing the right prescription or the drug or the therapy for you. 
it's first is knowing the person in a complete context mm. and that's i believe is the is something that we need to rethink and reshape the healthcare system in in the debate that we are having in on access to health and everything else is there is this marginalized population in health as well how do we understand how do we understand the context of the person the neighborhood the access to recreational facilities the access to uh to food access to literacy you can tell things to person and this data pops up do i understand this data what do i do with this data is it accessible to everyone i think those are the challenges that i hope we can begin to tackle uh through this lens of quantified and qualified self mm-hmm. to build a complete story natesh chawla thank you very much thank you Visiting your hometown can be weird, and not just because of the slim chance you might run into someone you went to high school with. The really weird thing about visiting your hometown, the place is just different. People who live there or visit there today don't see the place the same way you saw it. Buildings are repurposed, monuments reimagined and reinterpreted. Here's a favorite example from my hometown. The tire and auto parts store is now a bakery. I went there for wiper blades. Today, people are going there for bear claws. Now imagine some place actually significant, and imagine not just a few years, but a few millennia. How would people there today view it differently than people centuries ago? A project from the School of Architecture is answering these questions in Rome. Rome has been a tourist destination since the 4th century, which is a fascinating way to study a city um and to have a recorded history of how people viewed the city and how people interacted with the city makes it a unique subject for today's audience. So it's interesting to see how people interacted with the same monuments and the same buildings we're seeing today and to be able to understand how they perceived and interpreted them um is fascinating I think for both students and and anybody traveling in Rome. That is Jennifer Parker, architecture librarian within the Hesburgh Libraries. She is co-lead on a project called Cities in Text Rome, which looks at bringing centuries-old travel guides to life. Travel guides became very popular in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, and their paths through Rome became codified. So this was the way you were to enter the city, this is the way you were to progress around the city, and these are the monuments you should see in the city. We became very interested in three particular travel guides, one from the 16th, one from the 17th, and one from the 18th century that laid out really interesting views of Rome um and really focused on the architecture in Rome more than just the Christian monuments. We were interested in looking at the architectural aspect because my research partner Selina Anders is an architect and our students working on the project are architecture students. The project is the work of the Hue Lab. That's H U E standing for Historic Urban Environments. It's a team of students, librarians and coders who are taking three travel guides, one each from the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, and bringing them to life in a website and a mobile app. We caught up with Professor Anders in Rome last fall. Rome was one of the most uh, discussed places 
or cities uh, for travelers. It was the epicenter of pilgrimage, uh, pilgrimage routes, um, and actually some of the first travel guides ever published uh, on the city of Rome were for pilgrims passing through Rome, coming to um, some of the most imp important churches and pilgrimage churches in the city of Rome, one of uh, the most important being behind us, uh, as we see at St. Peter's. And that lineage just never stopped. It just kept growing. Um, there was a, a period in the Renaissance where there was more of an in interest in looking to antiquities because the study of antiquities and the development of humanism was really important. So there was very few contemporary buildings mentioned of the, the time period that the authors were writing in. But then when we get to the 16th uh, or the 17th and 18th century texts, what we see, start to see is a celebration of Rome, not just for its monuments, but the social services that the church provided. So all of the hospitals and um, this, the centers for care for the public who were not doing so well, who uh, might have been impoverished at the time. So it becomes something, they evolve uh, as a genre as well and what they write about or what uh, historic authors write about for the city of Rome. So as soon as we arrived in Rome, it was really a place that spoke to me. That's Jenna Frantic, one of the students working on the project, and she's talking about arriving for the Rome Studies program in which all Notre Dame architecture students spend their third year in Rome. We talked about it in season one of this show as it celebrated its 50th anniversary. So as soon as we drove in on the bus, I knew that I wanted to take every opportunity I had in my year abroad. And so one of the first weeks I went up to Professor Anders and I said, what can I do? What can I do to really make this the best year for me and the best year for my learning in architecture? And so she got me involved with the Hugh Project and working on that project both in Rome and coming back to South Bend has really been influential to my education in architecture. So for the past year and a half, I've been working with Giuseppe Vassi's 18th century text, um, which is an eight day guide to Rome that includes over 100 miles in walking tours and over 500 different um, monuments and sites. So what I've primarily been working on is researching those monuments and sites and providing descriptions, written descriptions, for the Hugh Project that will be televised in both the app and the website. When I was in Rome, I was able to do the walks that Vasi describes and be able to go see the sites myself, see what I was researching, learn about new places, all while I was also, you know, studying abroad and getting that immersive experience. And then coming back, I've also been able to find sites that I didn't get to see when I was in Rome. And now I have a reason when I go back to be encouraged to see those places that I've now learned about and experienced. Side note on Giuseppe Vasi's guide, the itinerary for the first day covers 28 miles. Here's Professor Anders again. And we've had a team of students that have worked with us from the beginning of the project now. They graduated, so um, <laughs> there's different groups of students who have worked with us, uh, but they've been very active in helping um, with translations, with monument descriptions, because we do give um, updated uh, present-day descriptions of each of the monuments to, to bring it into our, our own present day, uh, in addition to translating the scholarly work of the authors that we're, we're looking at and the students have helped with that. They've drawn um, on site the monuments as we see them today, so in the tradition of the books that we're looking at that provided um, basically a record in that time period that they're describing the monument. We wanted to continue that tradition so that we can uh, have a kind of time capsule of what that monument looked like today, and it enhances not only their drawing skills, but also their research skills and understanding of the place by actually sitting and drawing it and, and looking at that transformation over time. I think every group wants to contribute to Rome, not just um, be a, 
not just utilize Rome as a resource, but actually to give back to the city of Rome. And whether it's through the students actually contributing through service work to the community in Rome, um, working whether in soup kitchens or, or working in various uh, environments, also through their architectural skills that they've learned, contributing to the city of Rome by um, documenting the sites. Like we have a group of students that worked um, on the documentation of the forum. We have the students working with Hugh, um, documenting the city as it is today in comparison to what it looked like over three centuries um, prior, and giving giving it back, uh, giving back to the city through their architectural skills is one thing that we hope to contribute, and I think what the school has been trying to contribute for many years. So, it's a give and take relationship. We, we're, our students are inspired by the city of Rome, and they try to give back through through their drawings and works to to help the city of Rome in whichever way they can. Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. Hey everyone, it's Andy. If you're enjoying Notre Dame Stories, do us a favor. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream and leave us a review. Also, I want to let you know about a project that's on its way. This summer, we took a trip to the Holy Land to explore the university's presence there. What we found was fascinating and inspiring. We're releasing these stories as a multi-part miniseries we're calling Tantur, Hill in the Holy Land. Be looking for it later this academic year. Thanks for listening.